turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you'll experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture, dive into the new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Bob Fisher, welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. Mark, I appreciate the opportunity to be invited back, and it's always glad when the door is open after you've left. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're a good friend. Every time that you and I connect, it's like we could just sit for hours and talk and talk right from the day we met. We've been doing this. That's true. That's true. And I love when you come on the show because we can do it and share it because it's always an interesting conversation. It's always enlightening. It's inspiring. It's motivational. It sort of helps me open my mind to ideas that I don't always think about. And it's just always a good conversation. So I'm happy that you're here again. All right. Well, do everything I can to get over that very high bar that you've just set. <laughs> yeah. So this better be good, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> so let me remind people who you are. Bob Fisher brings more than 30 years of strategic foresight, business, branding, communications, and marketing experience to design intelligence, an industry-leading research and consulting firm that specializes in the architecture, engineering, construction, and design industries. He publishes, he speaks, he talks about strategy and leadership and winning work for professional practices. He's been here, as I mentioned, been here before. He was here very, very early. October 2014 was the first time that you were with us, Bob, episode 48. So pre 100, that's a rare occurrence. I recognized your genius early, Mark. <laughs> well, it was those conversations. It was those early conversations. It was like, I have to have Bob on the show. So we talked about storytelling. In 2014, we were talking about storytelling, which recently storytelling has sort of become a trend, right? Throughout business and industry, everybody's now talking about storytelling and understand the importance of storytelling and how it's connected to brand and all of that. We had that conversation in 2014 about architects. So very, very early. Absolutely. Because <laughs> storytelling is early in the rest of the world. For architects, it were decades earlier than everybody else started talking about storytelling. And then in October 2020, not too long ago, you hijacked my podcast. I did. And interviewed me and where I shared my origin story. Talked about where I started and how I got involved in architecture and went through the whole process. And so that was a lot of fun. I had a great time doing that. We'll have links to both of those episodes on the show notes. You've also shared elsewhere in the Entree Architect world. You've done expert training sessions for us at the Entree Architect Network. Mm -hmm. July 2022, you were on Context and Clarity with Jeff Beckles and Catherine McPhail, talking about trends in the industry and how architects should be preparing and responding to these trends that are in our industry. So I'll have links to all of that. Let's not forget that you have also appeared on our platforms as well, because you have written articles for us yeah. that we have published to our audience. So it goes both ways. Yeah. And it's always fun to do that. When you said that, another thought came to mind. We also did an AIA event, which may have been the first time we actually connected in person, mm -hmm. where I was on a panel with you talking, it was a design intelligence panel, yeah. talking about business or something about architecture. But it was, like I said, it's always fun. So I have links to all of that stuff on the show notes. Recently, where you and I connected, we were just talking on one of our catch-up calls. You were talking about an article that you're writing, mm -hmm. which is now out, called How to Cultivate a Winning Work Culture. Yes. And it's about resilience, and it's about 
the culture of winning work, how to build a firm that everybody's doing the big heavy lifting of getting the next job. It's an article that you recently, well, you wrote with one of your partners, Phyllis Getz. Is that how you pronounce her name? Gates. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so it's in the quarter one, 2023, Q1, 2023 design intelligence quarterly, which is one of your publications that you put out every quarter. And it's a great article. You shared it with me. We started talking about it and we thought, well, we should have this conversation on the podcast. So that's why we're here. That's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about resilient firms and how resilient firms lead to a culture of winning work. So you want to sort of set us up and sort of talk about why this article is even being written? Yeah, you've done a great job of framing it so far. Basically, Phyllis has a lot of expertise on sometimes very large scale in business development and sales. So she spent her career there doing that and, you know, helped launch Steelcase's healthcare line and obviously, you know, grew that business and through a lot of business development. And she has a very deep understanding of this. And so she and I got together because we really wanted to impart this idea that when firms are out there trying to win work, regardless of what scale they're on, it's not like they're separately doing marketing and brand and then separately doing business development and sales. It's really all under one umbrella. And that one umbrella is all about winning work. And the ultimate goal is really quite simple. The ultimate goal is to get to a point where the firm or the practitioner is choosing their clients rather than simply trying to be really good at being chosen. And so if you look at winning work as kind of a holistic endeavor, that does have some specialties within it. But looking at the winning work as a whole endeavor, it makes it a lot easier to be efficient and effective at the way you go about marketing and business development and sales, all the individual components in it. Anyway, this is our thesis. This is our hypothesis. Yeah. And so Phyllis and I have been doing a lot of work together on this concept of building programs that help firms to look at simply the whole process of winning work as parts of a whole thing and to approach it that way. And one of the foundational elements, one of the most effective ways to be successful at winning work is to build a real culture around winning work. And that is, you know, when we say a culture about winning work, we're talking about something that's pervasive all the way through the firm. So if you have a smaller firm or if it's a sole practice, well, that's relatively easy because if that practitioner changes their perspective and their approach, great. When you get into organizations that are seven people, 14 people, 25 people, 50 people, it gets a little bit more complex because you have people performing specialist functions, right? So folks who are in smaller firms have the advantage of already wearing multiple hats. So changing their ideas about how they look at winning work, bringing work into the door is actually a little bit easier to implement. Yeah. And this should be very good news for architects because architects, when they think about business and they think about marketing and sales, their skin starts to crawl, right? And if the idea, and I think is a very strong thesis, is that if you build a culture of winning work, you don't need to do any of that, right? You build a culture where everybody is out there hustling and saying the right story and sharing the right information and having the right relationships. And therefore, the work comes to you because you've done that work of building the culture, cultivating the culture of winning work. Everybody's out there doing it. That's great news for creatives, right? It is great news, but it requires something very important, which was to go against what I think is the culture of the profession around winning work. So you mentioned that right. for some folks, it makes their skin crawl. And my question is, well, why is that? Right, Exactly. Design intelligence, we deal with hundreds and hundreds of firms a year, and we get to know them fairly well. And I spend a lot of time inside of firms doing my advisory work. And it's so funny because I'll ask people whether they have an interest in business development sales. And the reaction I most often get is the one that you described, where people, they kind of reject it because they see it as somehow 
antithetical to why they got into the profession to start with. Yeah. You know, you ask them if they're comfortable having business development conversations like, oh no, man, that's really hard for me to do. But then you ask them a different way. You say, well, are you comfortable having conversations with people about how your work helps them? Right. They say, oh, sure. Yeah. And they're perfectly comfortable doing that. Yeah. Virtually everybody is. As long as they're doing it from their role and in their way. So somehow we got this idea as a profession that you have to become like P.T. Barnum, you know, some kind of carnival barker or like a vacuum cleaner salesman in order to bring work in the door and that you're going to be strong arming people and you're going to have to become some other personality in order to do it. That's absolutely not true. But yet it's this pervasive cultural belief. So, you know, my background is in communications in the business and marketing. So I'm used to these ideas, but you started as an architect. Maybe you tell me why, where did this come from? Yeah. Where did this self-limiting belief come from? I think a lot of it is what you just described, right? That we're creatives and we didn't become architects to make a lot of money, right? We became architects to change the world, right? To, To take our creativity and make the world better for the individuals we work with. And therefore some feel if we bring money and profit and sales into all of that, it sort of ruins it somehow. It soils it, right? Also, I think that even when I introduced this and said, well, everybody's going to do the job of sales, right? Instantly, people thought a team of salespeople, right? So now everybody in the firm from the interns up to the principal are going to be salespeople. They're going to be out there hustling and calling people and cold calling and right. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about building a culture of winning work, not building a team of salespeople. And I think that idea of sales equals you know, used car salesman is changing, right? When I first started in the mid nineties talking about this kind of stuff, it was very much, we don't sell, right? We don't even market as architects. It's against the rules to even do any of that, right? Even back in the mid nineties, people were still talking about the culture of not allowed to talk about money and it's beneath us to do marketing and advertising. That's changed, right? Architects are much more entrepreneurs, especially this audience, this audience of small firms are entrepreneur architects. That's who we are. Um, and so we very much have shifted that mindset. Not necessarily, well, much of it is through Entree Architect, but I think the culture of the profession is shifting and the idea of what is required to build a strong business and the importance of marketing and sales in that is very much changing in our industry. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. And I was just going to say, I think you and your organization have had a lot to do with that. But I can tell you a little bit of a story that sort of inspired this article, if I can. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. So a few years ago, one of the larger firms was having a significant anniversary. And I was invited down to their Atlanta office because I'm based outside of Atlanta. I was invited to their Atlanta office for the celebration. Well, I went down there and it was fantastic. It was packed full of people. Amazing. Biggest shrimp I've ever seen like (laughs) on a buffet table. And I guess that's where people were really focused because they were also giving tours. And I was really delighted because I love to go see the work and talk to the people who do the design work. So I was led around by two relatively young practitioners. One was an interiors practitioner and the other was an architectural designer. Both of them happened to be guys. They were in, I would say, probably their mid-20s. So they've probably been out of school anywhere from three to five years. And they're taking me around and we're talking about all these projects that they're doing in different places. And they're telling me about what was the design rationale and approach to this one and that one, the other thing. And I asked them a question that I often do when I'm in these kind of situations. And I said, well, who's responsible for winning work to bring it into the firm? And they kind of looked at each other for a sec and they looked at me and they said, well, we are. And I was like, oh, wow. I was like, you were? Like, I'm very rarely without words, but I was for a few moments. Yeah. Because every time I ask that question, it's always, well, it's the office leader or it's the market sector leader or it's the owner. You know, if it's a smaller firm, it's the owner who's bringing all the work. So I was really surprised and intrigued when they said, well, it's us. And I said, you mean you're going out there and doing conference presentations and, you know, meeting with clients and this, they were like, no, no, not really. And they went on to, they said, well, 
But the way that we do it is, you know, through the work that we do and the way that we serve clients, we want to make happy clients who come back. And so then they went on to tell me about how each one of them was able to go on and tell me about how they were responsible in their normal day-to-day role for being part of this process of bringing work into the firm, like either new clients or, you know, repeat clients. And you can tell if somebody's giving you talking points. Yeah. But they were dead earnest about it. We were just having a conversation. And it was very clear based on this firm that they had worked on developing a culture of winning work. Yeah. So it is out there and it does happen. And there's really 10 qualities. And this is what the article sort of spells out. Phyllis and I do this in the article. We talk about the 10 qualities of a culture of winning work. Should I run through those? Yeah. Well, why don't you give us the 10 and then let's go back and unpack each one. Okay. Sounds good. So I'm just going to give you kind of the quick title of each of them and we can unpack okay. it. Okay. The first one is engaged entrepreneurship, which is where the firm actively cultivates and rewards kind of entrepreneurial mindset and actions. The second is integrated with mission. What that basically means is that people don't see this contradiction between the work that they wish to do and winning work, right? Winning work is part of the greater mission to help others and to create great design. The third one is shared responsibility authentically implemented. And that's where everybody in the firm can say what role or through what the role that they play and in their own style, how they help win projects, just like the story I told earlier. The fourth one is attunement to clients and markets. What that basically means is that everybody understands the value of what the firm offers. And many of them can kind of spot opportunities because they really understand what the client's world is all about. The fifth one is all about relationships. Relationships come first and foremost. And a lot of times you see firms that pursue projects and not longer-term relationships. We can unpack that one a little bit later. The sixth one is about marketing kind of paving the way and understanding what building your brand is all about, what marketing is all about, how that relates to business development and sales, and getting away from the traditional model where what's called marketing, and I'm doing air quotes now, is really about RFP response. The seventh one is no daylight between work winning functions. Had to throw in a little sports term there. Marketing and business development are part of this integrated whole that we talked about. Then starting with talent and thinking about when you're actually bringing people into the firm, how well are they adapted to or receptive to this idea of the culture of winning work? The other one is aligned incentives, values, and rewards. And what that's about is creating a system that gets the kind of culture that you want. When I say a system, I'm talking about criteria for how people are promoted how bonuses are done, a lot of those incentives that keep people going. And then the final one is all about, and this one will be probably near to your heart, embracing the concept of profitability, that the firm understands they need to prioritize resources for the fundamental purpose that they have and for their future. So that's the quick view of all 10. Yeah, and that right there, we could end it right there. They take those 10 <laughs> and go execute, right? The 10 qualities of winning work culture, go out and execute on those 10 lists. I'd love to go through each one. It resonates so much with me, every one of these. So I fear that we can do a five-hour podcast here. So we'll have to be careful where we go with this, Bob, because I know that you and I can talk forever on each one of these. So let's start with engaged entrepreneurship. Sure. So engaged entrepreneurship, one of the first things that's important to understand is what do we mean by entrepreneurship? You know, it's one of these terms that means a lot of things to a lot of different people. When I'm speaking about entrepreneurship, I'm talking about the ability to look at the market, see a gap in the market. In other words, some way that people are not being served that they should be and finding a creative way to profitably fill that gap. Right. And it can be applied to business. It can be applied to nonprofits and social issues. It's just about seeing a need and figuring out a way to fill that need. 
That's the fundamental concept that's really important. Yeah. You know, everybody can say, oh, that sounds like a really great idea, but actions speak louder than words. And so do allocation of resources. So a culture of winning work allows people to come forward with ideas and is open to ideas from any level of the organization. One of those two people I referred to earlier in my story, they could have fantastic ideas about a new way to serve clients that even the senior most people at that firm might not have thought about. You got to stay open to that kind of stuff. And then let's just say have the willingness to support them. You know, when somebody comes forward with a new idea, let them develop it. Let them try it out. Understand that there's a good possibility that it won't take off. You know, it may not be the right thing, but tolerating failure and being able to contain it within acceptable parameters, that's all part of that kind of engaged entrepreneurship. And not only allowing it, but embracing it and encouraging it and building it into the culture. So it is part of the way we work here, right? And looking at an architecture firm structure in a very different way than we have traditionally in the past right? That traditionally in the past, there was a very hierarchical organization. This may still be hierarchical, but the culture of it allows people who may be at the very bottom of that org chart to have equal say in sharing an idea and allowing it to be embraced and encouraged as much as the CEO at the top, right? Because that person at the bottom may have the greatest idea that can transform that firm. And so having that uh, entrepreneurial mindset throughout the culture of your firm is super important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I like your description better, actually, because it's much more proactive. You know, the idea of embracing this and saying, yeah, this is part of how we operate. And if you're in a multi-person firm, that can be really attractive to people yeah. who have that kind of entrepreneurial bent, right? They're going to want a place where they can contribute meaningfully. They can build something that was at least in part or wholly their idea. So it's a fantastic thing for the culture of an organization. Yeah, that actually personally happened to me. I'm an entrepreneurial guy. I'm a dreamer. I like business. I was a young architect working for a mid-sized firm, actually with a small firm, larger small firm. And I was probably on track for partnership, right? That if I wanted to, I always knew that I wanted my own firm, which we talked about in the origin story. Mm -hmm. But I brought a big idea to the leadership of that firm. And they basically just dismissed me, right? They looked at it. Oh. They said, yeah, well, that's not how we work here. They didn't say those words, but that's essentially the result, right? And I always look at that and a lesson learned for sure, right? For me and for my platform today, talking about that. So others don't do that. But I also look back and I wonder, what if they did embrace it? What if they said, Let's look into that. Even if it was a stupid idea, right? I was a young mm -hmm. architect. I didn't really understand how their business worked. And probably looking back on the idea that I brought to them probably wasn't a good idea. But what if they did embrace it and then they encouraged it and they looked at it and they took it seriously? Mm -hmm. Maybe I would have stayed there. Sure. And that wasn't the thing that made me leave. But what if the culture there was that of such, right? Of an entrepreneurial mindset. Maybe somewhere along the line, rather than jumping ship and going to start the, my own thing, which I always had planned, maybe I would have seen that there was another opportunity to still do that within this firm. And this firm would have benefited from me staying there and become partner and transforming their firm. Sure. That one decision shifted everything for both of us. Yeah. If we play out the counterfactual, the alternative history in this. Right. So let's say when you came to them with the idea, they had a way that they could help you evaluate that idea. Right. You know, even as something as simple as using a traditional business planning process, and they would say, hey, Mark, we really love your energy. We think maybe there's something in this, but we need to put it through a vetting process. Let's teach you how to do that. Yeah. So let's say that you did do that and you found out that there really was something that was economically viable and would help people in a new way. So then let's say they said, okay, Mark, i tell you what we're going to do. We're going to fund this a certain amount, but really it's on you to build this. But here are the other ways that we're going to support you in figuring out how to grow. Let's pretend that it was a new line of business, like a new service line. Yeah. So let's say they invest in you and you grow this thing. 
if they're smart, then they say, hey, Mark, in your first 18 months of doing this, you've really done a great job. There have been some up and downs, but we think that this can continue and grow. Now that you've started to get it off the ground, your next job is we need you to build a team. We need you to start bringing other people into doing this. So let's say you do that and then you're successful and it's 36 months later. And let's say you kind of get that itch, right? That you want to go off and start your own thing. Yep. So let's say between 36 and 48 months later, three to four years later, you do wind up leaving the firm. Well, what is the firm left with? The firm is left with a viable additional line of revenue with a team to do it. So it doesn't matter that you wanted to leave. Right. Everybody wins as long as it's done right. Yeah. And so what you described was being intentional and having a system in place for that to occur, right? That can't be something that last minute, oh, let's let them do this, right? No. When I brought the idea, that system was brought in place. It's culture, it's system, and it's resources. Yeah, yeah. Those are three of the important things to bring. Well, let's keep going here. Next one is integrated with mission. Right. So when I talk to folks in firms and I ask them how comfortable they are having business development conversations, virtually nobody says yes. Some people do, but virtually nobody says yes. But when you ask them how comfortable they are having conversations about how the firm's work helps people and improves lives. They're very comfortable doing that. And then when you ask them about how they do that in their role, they're very comfortable about talking about that as well. You got to get to the point where there's no false separation between winning work and ultimately why the firm exists, right? Which is helping people. Yeah. There's a colleague of mine named Scott Simpson who talks about how business development is actually the first step in the design process because you're connecting with the prospective clients, you're connecting with the clients and coming to understand them, coming to understand their world and coming in to start formulating or setting down the ideas about how the firm might help them. I love that. That requires you to develop and understand your mission, mm-hmm. right? So you clearly understand what your mission is. And that's, you know, big M, little M, right? That's sort of the work we do and the culture that we have and how that work affects the people we work for. But if you go through the process of actually documenting the mission of your firm, that becomes very strong and solid. And then that's something that you can very easily transfer to the people that you work with. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial, especially in today's business environment. Outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, delays, and rising costs. With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like RCAT.com is so important. RCAT works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate and offers it to you easily accessible and free. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try RCAT.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. So number three, shared responsibility, authentically implemented. Okay, so this is going to be kind of a reiteration of some things that we've talked about. It's all about the idea, and it's kind of, you know, busting a misperception, like a cultural misperception. The misperception is, is that in order to be effective at helping bring in work or bringing in work, that I need to become somebody else, right? That I need to become the stereotype of the salesman. And I use the old school term on purpose, right? Because we're talking about old stereotypes. Yeah. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's actually counterproductive. What you want to do is be yourself. Now you have to understand what the value is that the firm delivers so that you can speak to it in a way that's in harmony with, you know, the brand that your firm's trying to build. But really that's more about internalizing and being able to talk about something in your own way. 
So there are introverts, there are extroverts, there are people with very direct communication styles. There are people who have a little bit softer communication styles and all of it can work and all of it can be very effective. And people do not need to fundamentally change who they are in order to actually play an important role in helping bring in work. Now, shared responsibility is really, it's this idea that everybody says, not only do they recognize how their role helps contribute to bringing in work, but they own the responsibility of doing that. And they say, you know what? I can't just do my role, but I need to also contribute to the firm fulfilling its mission and being profitable and building more resources so we can do more of the great stuff that we all got into the profession to do. So that was shared responsibility authentically implemented. Yes. I love that phrase. I should pin that on the wall. <laughs> all right. Next Please one. Do. Attunement to clients and markets. Okay. So again, reiterations, everybody understands what the value is that the firm offers. Remember, value is defined by the clients and the building users. They define what value is, right? So everybody understands how the firm helps clients and building users in their world, as opposed to, you know, some of the things that the design firm might value, like creating, you know, beautiful architecture, right? Which is a perfectly valid thing. But having this attunement to clients, understanding what the clients want and need and what the building users want and need is absolutely essential. So is this idea of understanding the markets. When you talk about the markets, really we're talking about the world that the clients live in. Now, if you're talking about somebody who's in a small firm residential practice, the client and the building user are one in the same. And the market is really people who need a place to live. Right. You know, there are segments within that, but it's really just understanding the, how people who you're serving see the world and understanding when it's, say, a commercial client, when you understand what kind of forces are acting on that client. Right. So let's say you have a client who's a healthcare client. Well, the more that you understand about the healthcare industry, and the more that you understand the business of that healthcare client, better you're going to be able to be attuned to them and what they need and understand how all of the other people who are constituents within that industry need and what kind of pressures they're under and how they measure their own success and performance. Yeah. And then connect the dots back to how does your design work contribute to that? Yeah. Yeah. And when we teach branding, we have a workshop called Build Your Brand Workshop and a course that goes with it. We talk about ideal client, developing an ideal client, the client that resonates with your firm, right? So you build a brand that attracts and resonates with the type of clients that you want to work with. Mm -hmm. By doing that, now you understand that client, right? You have an attunement with that client. By doing that process, you can then build a culture of the people who work with you to understand who that ideal client is as well. So when they're out in their world, right? Playing racquetball or pickleball is the new thing, right? They don't play right. racquetball anymore. They converted all the racquetball courts to pickleball courts right. out playing pickleball. And somebody starts talking about something they're doing or something they're working with or and it's that ideal client that your firm works with and the type of work that you do serves that person in that market, bingo, right? Then you can bring that back to the firm and bring it to the culture. And that's part of the winning the work. Yeah. And one of the healthiest things about that whole scenario is getting outside of your own perspective and putting yourself in, I'm sorry to use the old cliche, but putting yourself in the client's shoes or in the, yeah. the building user's shoes. And really understanding what their world is all about. Like it's a simple sounding idea. It's a straightforward sounding idea, but very difficult. It takes a lot of intentionality and it takes a bit of work to actually be able to do that. Yeah. Next one, relationships first and foremost. All right. So one of the things that's good news, I think, for you know architects and others in professional practice is it's natural in a lot of cases that people develop friendships with their clients, right? That you actually become 
attached as people. And you have a great relationship. And a lot of times those relationships can go on for years. Well, the good news is, is that that's really ultimately what you're trying to build. That authentic connection with people that is often longer term. Yeah. One of the biggest mistakes that we see a lot of firms make is having a project orientation in their business development. So they are the best friend in the world to that client. They are connected with that client all the way until the ribbon's cut, commission's done, and then it's on to the next client that you have to cultivate. But really, that is not the way to build a sustainable business that grows. Because ultimately, prioritizing the longer-term relationships and making a genuine relationship with people and just seeking to first help is the best way to ensure that you're going to have happy clients that not only come back to you, but are incredible advocates on the pickleball court. (laughs) Exactly. That's something that I had to learn, that the firms that I worked with, I think some of them did that. But when I started my own firm, we tried that and it backfired on us. Hmm. You know, we became friends and then we had a problem. Mm -hmm. And then because we were friends, that problem was hard to resolve because we became friends. Ah. And so Anne-Marie and I established a policy. We're not going to be friends with our clients anymore. And Mm -hmm. that was the rule. Mm -hmm. And it worked great, right? And we weren't friends. We just did our job and we were friendly. People loved us. And if we see them in the supermarket, you know, we'd have a conversation, but we intentionally resisted making them our friends. I've learned since then how important that is to have the relationship. When I spoke with Gene Cohn, Gene Cohn of KPF Architects, Mm -hmm. that is one of the primary focus. I mean, that's his whole responsibility at the firm since the beginning was building relationships with people who turn into projects and to continue that relationship for decades. Patrick McLamey at HOK said the same thing, that it was about the relationships of those firms, which is how those firms grew, both internally and externally, were through one-on-one relationships with people who they are still friends with today Mm -hmm. in their 70s and 80s. Yeah, well, you picked two really great exemplars of that. Now, there's something that you said that I think is very telling in your story. You said, because we were friends and we had a problem, we found it very difficult to resolve that. Yeah. I would challenge that a bit and say, couldn't it be actually easier when you have a friend relationship with somebody to work something out because of the level of trust and because you give each other the benefit of the doubt? And you have open lines of communication. So if people are experiencing that, where they're saying, oh, you know, I have a really good relationship with this person. And, you know, we've got our schedules being thrown off because they just won't make decisions. When's that ever happened? (laughs) That, you know, if you do have an authentic relationship with that client, that you can go to them in a way that actually removes barriers instead of puts them up. Yeah. As we grew... We learned a lot about mm-hmm. the importance of those relationships. We were very young and it was a very early mistake that was made and that relationship occurred and we just responded to it, right? We just said, okay, this is how we do it. Yeah. And even early on in Entree Architect, because it was overlapping that period of my career, I used to teach that, that just do your job, don't build relationships. But I have totally flip-flopped on that and that is... Because I've talked to people like Patrick Mm -hmm. and Gene, it is critical to success in business. Well, you know, I think I just had another episode idea. This could be an entire episode because, you know, who doesn't experience that in professional life where, you know, you've got to set both personal and professional boundaries, right? In order to have a healthy relationship. And how do you wind up going about doing that? Because, you know, on the flip side, if a client is overly familiar in some ways, They may feel perfectly comfortable in asking for all kinds of extras. Yeah. Right. And maybe people have experienced that too. So there's a lot to unpack there. I think the key takeaway for this conversation that we're having is that authentic relationships that extend well beyond a project opportunity and frankly come before a project opportunity is really the best way to contribute to this culture of winning work. 
Yeah, 100% agree. And we will come back and do another episode on that. (laughs) All right. Number six, marketing paves the way. Okay. So this one requires a little bit of, I guess, a history lesson in that traditionally in a lot of architecture firms, marketing is really this word that people use when what they mean is responding to RFPs. And you can see this all over the place when you see firms that are set up to have proposal coordinators. And that's the primary role of marketing. It's reflected in their staffing and it's reflected in their budgets. And, you know, principals or whomever will bring in opportunities. They will set the strategy for the approach. They'll make the go, no go decision, set the strategy for the approach. And then they'll pull in the marketing coordinators who help put together, you know, some of the elements of the story and, whatever the RFP requires. That is a very reactive and very limiting way to look at the role of marketing in an organization. I don't know if you've ever talked about Peter Drucker, the strategy pioneer to your audience. I know Peter Drucker well, but I haven't talked about him very much. Okay. So one of my favorite quotes from him is, the aim of marketing is to make selling superfluous. Say that again. Say that again. The aim of marketing is to make selling superfluous. So let's take that statement to the nth degree. If you had such a well-known and well-positioned brand that you literally didn't need to sell and you had people coming to you, you had more business coming in on its own volition than you could handle, then you would be fulfilling that aspiration that he sets out in that statement. The first 20 years of my career were spent outside of the AEC world. And so I saw a lot of different industries and how they approached marketing. And there are a lot of really helpful ideas from outside the industry that have fortunately started to come into AEC. And one of those ideas is that it goes back to that Drucker quote, that the more well-known you are for how you want to be known, right? which is a clunky way to put it. If you've got the reputation that you want. Yeah. Or if you talk about branding, how strong is your brand? Yes. Yeah. That's another way to put it. If you build a brand that is very strong and that brand actually is like a magnet. Right. And it is bringing not just any old client in, but it's bringing in the best match clients. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about ideal clients. Right. Right. And part of building an effective brand is introducing an element of self-selection right. so that let's say, for example, that you're designing premium homes, right? That are within a certain price band, yeah. right? You're not the person that's going to do multifamily and you're not doing housing for people who are buying their first home, right? That's not your market, yeah. right? It's a great market. It's not your market. Having people understand that before they ever reach out to you is very powerful and saves you a lot of time and heartache. So imagine that you have this brand where people know how to self-qualify, right? Your clients know when to, or I should say, all the people in the world who need architects of different types know when to call you and when to call somebody else. That is a fantastic thing because that means that more people who are coming to you are more qualified, right? By qualified, I simply mean that they're a better match, right? So having marketing and building a brand in a way that is proactive requires a whole different set of skills than simply being able to respond well to RFPs. You've got to be able to do that. That's always going to be part of the process. You've got to have that capability. So it's really kind of a both-and type scenario. Yeah. The power of marketing, the power of brand, and the power of marketing building that brand attracting your ideal clients and repelling the clients that you don't want is a critical piece, right? You have to do that. It's part of how business is run. And it's a critical piece to building a winning work culture. It is. And it's scary because whenever you're telling people no, unless you're very secure about the market that you're going after, I could feel a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. And that's usually the pushback. And we've done entire podcast episodes on that. We've done branding workshops and courses. So hit me up if you're interested in learning more about that. The next one is no daylight between work winning 
functions. Okay, so this idea does pertain more to firms that are at a scale where they've started to specialize and that there are some people who are doing marketing who have you know specialty and expertise in that area. Yeah. And then there are other people who are out there in business development. In other words, well, what's the difference between the two? Something becomes business development when it's individuals connecting with other individuals, right? That's at least our definition of it. Yeah. When it's a one-to-many communication, you could say it's leans more toward marketing. But when you have now a team that's trying to win work for the firm or people whose functions are specialized within that whole process, ensuring that they're coordinating, not just in their activities, but in big fundamental questions like, how does the firm create value? Why does the firm exist? How does it help people? Why should anybody choose your firm over another? Those kind of things are They seem obvious when we talk to them, but they're not always put in practice. And being able to have that team work together absolutely seamlessly is really important. And one of the ways to do that is by looking at the whole process of winning work as elements within a single process, not here is the marketing piece. Right. Here is the business development sales piece. Right. Hence a culture. Yes. Right? Yeah. That is all a culture. Yes. The next one is start with talent. Okay. So think about recruiting people into the firm. You know, most people, when they're doing that, they're thinking about, well, what role do I need somebody to fill? And so they're looking for a set of skills that are going to fill that role. If we're being a little more sophisticated about it, you also start to look for a cultural match. Right, somebody who's going to fit in with the rest of the team and somebody who's going to add something to the culture of the firm because of their attributes as well as their skills. Well, when you are looking at what those attributes are, there are, we talked about these cultural issues within architecture and in a lot of the other design based professional practices where people see this kind of separation a complete difference between running a business and designing things. And sometimes it's an antagonistic relationship in people's minds. Well, if you're trying to build a culture of winning work, no matter how talented somebody is, if they start to bring that attitude in there, it is going to work against the culture that you're trying to build. So why not include this culture of winning work as one of the criteria that you use in going out and figuring, you know, who's going to be the best kind of team member to bring into the firm. Which means that the cultural fit comes before the talent. Well, in many ways, yes. Or the skills. The cultural fit comes before the skills is really what I meant. Yeah. That if you have a fantastic designer, best designer you've ever seen, Mm -hmm. but he or she is a toxic contributor to your culture, right? You see immediately that this is going to be a conflict everywhere that this person turns, no matter how good they are at design, they have to fit the culture first and then find the great designer. Yeah. And that's actually the exact example I was about to draw out. And I've seen this play on over and over and over again, where you've got someone who's, let's say they're a really good salesperson and they're bringing a lot of revenue into the firm, or let's say they're a fantastic designer. But they are throwing elbows all over the place inside the firm and really hurting people. The first thing that leadership needs to do is to address that problem. And if the person is not willing to adjust their behavior and alter their words, they're out. Yeah. Because that culture is what you have to go after first. So in terms of the culture of winning work, it's probably understandable if folks are coming out of school or coming from other firms that don't share the culture of winning work, that they need to learn it. But there's the difficult job of figuring out, are they predisposed to being open? Because that's what you need. Yeah, You need somebody who's going to be open to this idea and who's going to see themselves as a positive contributor to it. Which means if you're starting a new firm and you want to build a culture of winning work, that's who you want to start building this team by looking for these people. If you are already established and you have a team, 
you need to evaluate your team and say, is this person fitting within this culture that we want to start building, right? If we don't, if we don't yet have a culture of winning work and we want to transition to that, that's going to require some pretty tough conversations. Potentially tough conversations, but you know, if, if everybody's open, if you've got people in your organization who are always looking for ways to get better, it's a question of saying, oh, this is a way to get better. This is something that we want to embrace at the firm, or this is something we embrace at the firm and let them know, see where they go with the information. Which leads us to the next one, aligned incentives, values, and rewards. Yeah. So there's another side to this, which is setting up incentives. I'll give you an example. I have seen firms who have multiple offices and each of these offices has a leader of that geography, right? A leader of that office. If you were to set up financial incentives that reward the office leader for the performance of the office, what are you going to get? Ultimately, you're going to get fiefdoms. You're going to get people who are really focused on making sure that their office performs. And you're going to start to see things like offices that are not willing to share staff with people, offices that are not willing to help one another develop business and win work because it doesn't help. It doesn't align with the incentive structure, right? So that's just one example, but you've got to have incentives like financial incentives and recognizing people, you know, for promotion or deciding who's going to be promoted. All of that stuff has to be pointed toward building the kind of culture that you want. So when you're a leader and you're thinking about the business side of this and you're thinking about allocating positions and responsibility and financial incentives and things like that, that whole system, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but that whole system has to be geared toward building the culture that you want. All right. The last one, embracing profitability. Okay. So this one in some ways goes back to the very beginning of our conversation, which is all about the culture of the profession and many in the profession. It's not everybody, obviously, but How is it that folks look at profit when we do kind of an initial analysis on a firm, which includes, you know, cultural analysis and looking at the business side of what they do? One of the things that sometimes is clear is that folks look at profit as the thing that's left over after all the work is done. Yeah. As opposed to saying, no, profit is actually designed into the whole financial structure of a project from the very beginning. Because we understand that profit is really about putting together the resources that help the broader mission of the firm, right? And there's a woman named Irene Krauss who used to lead the Daughters of Charity National Health System. She very famously said, no margin, no mission. I love that quote. And that kind of says it all, right? Just understanding that you know money is not antithetical to the practice of design. Money is absolutely necessary to the practice of design. And if you are creating value far in excess of what you're claiming, or maybe not far in excess because then your fee should be higher, but if you're creating value... That's beyond, a whole other episode. Right. <laughs> multiple episodes. But if you're creating value in excess of your fee, then... Why is it that you should not take some of that value or have some of that value so that you could build a better and stronger organization that can help even more people? Yeah. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast for any amount of time knows how I feel about this quality, embracing profitability. I say profit, then art. That's my reminder that the profit comes before the art. If you can get a profitable business, you spend the time to build a profitable business then you can go and create all the art that you want, right? That the art can't come first because then you won't be doing it very long and it won't be very good. Yeah. An analogy that I recently have come up with is it's like an internal combustion engine, right? That profit is not the exhaust, right? In order for an internal combustion engine to work, you need fuel, air, and an ignition, right? Fuel, air, and ignition. And profit is the fuel. It's the thing that gets the car to go, right? that it can't be exhaust. And so embracing profitability is critical to the steps. Yeah. Well, 
if anybody's interested, and maybe you can do a link in the show notes or something, but this article, by the time the episode releases, will be available. So they can have that reminder and a little bit of explanation there of what's going on. Yeah, it's Design Intelligence Quarterly Q1 2023, if you're listening to this in the future. His name is Bob Fisher. The company, the firm is Design Intelligence. DI.net is the website. DI-mediagroup.com is where you can get all the content. We'll have all of those links on the show notes. Bob, thank you. I appreciate you for sharing your knowledge with us. This has been inspiring and motivational. I appreciate you for coming by and talking to our community and and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. I appreciate the opportunity and I hope it's been helpful. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. I know I say this every episode, but I'd really love for you to send me some feedback. Share a rating, write a review, however you want to do that. And please share a link to this episode with a friend. Just send it off in an email. Say, hey, take a listen to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. I appreciate it. Share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode. Links to all our sponsors and all the resources that we discussed today in this episode are available at the show notes for this episode and all the episodes can be found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. That's the media network that's dedicated to architects, engineers, and construction pros. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you like this podcast, if you like Entree Architect podcast, I think you'll love all the podcasts at Gable Media. Go check them out at gablemedia.com. My name is Mark Arlapage. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect podcast. I appreciate you. Love, learn, and share what you know. Are you NCARB certified yet? Join the network of over 45,000 architects who have the NCARB certificate to expand your professional reach. By becoming NCARB certified, you are demonstrating that you've met the national standards for licensure, a qualification that can be an important factor for firms when hiring and promoting. Certificate holders have a streamlined path to apply for a reciprocal license in all 55 U.S. jurisdictions, as well as access to an extensive library of free continuing education courses. Learn more today at ncarb.org. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? 
<laughs> we did it, guys. Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.